0: I hope you have your Bible with you, and you should open it to the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament. It is a little book tucked away almost at the end of the Old Testament. Thank you, Caleb. We began this study last week from the book of Zephaniah, and if you will recall, we started off with a bang. Zephaniah didn't pull any punches. He didn't, uh, he didn't uh, say, well, let me soften this approach. Let me make it nice and easy for you. He didn't say, uh, I have a message that may be difficult, but let me do whatever I can to uh, to qualify that or to ease the burden or to, to lift it up a little bit. He said, I'm going to tell you what God is telling me, and that, uh, the word of the Lord we talked about last week began with these words. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Not a message that was uh, easy to hear, not a message that was necessarily easy to preach, I can tell you. And I want to tell you that uh, uh, it doesn't get... Uh, A lot easier as we get further into the book. He's not going to lessen it up or pull back today either. Now there are, I told you this last week in this letter, we find really strong, really stark words of God's coming judgment, but we also find really clear words of God's hope inside of or in the face of that judgment. Today I've entitled my message, The Day of the Lord. And before I read the text for us, I want to remind us that I I, I brought to us uh, all the way to the very end. We're going to get there uh, before too long here. But the very end in chapter 3, verse 17, there's a phrase tucked away that I want us to keep in our minds as we go through this study. And I want you to say it with me this morning. It comes from Zephaniah 3.17. Read it with me if you would. The Lord God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. This was a theme that came through so strongly in the songs we sang this morning. Thank you, Todd, for leading us in those songs. And I'm going to tell you again, today, as we read through the text, this isn't going to become quite apparent yet. We're not going to quite get to the words that are going to be these these breath of fresh air. And if you know how I'm made up, you know that that's hard for me because I, I love to bring words of encouragement and fresh air and 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 to point us and to say let me let me ease it let me let me make it as uh, let me give life to this and and we're not unfortunately as we're going to get into the text this morning going to be there so I want to put this up way at the beginning to remind us that what we're going to read through we're going to get to these words eventually and I want us to know that even in the midst of heaviness. Even in the midst of pressure, even in the midst of feeling like, this is feeling like a ton of bricks being hauled like poured down on top of me, that we know that God is still here in our midst, and God is mighty to save. I dare say that we don't understand the beauty, the, the, the breathtaking unbelievably good news of the beauty of the death of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection and what it means and offers us, we don't understand that fully until we understand the weight of what we are being saved from. If you wanted to put all the things I just said into a much shorter sentence, I don't think we truly understand the good news and how good it is until we understand the bad news. So, let's read today Zephaniah chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 7, where I stopped off last week. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. And as you will be able to tell, Zephaniah isn't ready yet to bring the message of hope. He's still talking about what God's judgment brings. So let's read through them this morning together. Verse 7, Zephaniah chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice... And then God begins to speak in first person. I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. Verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. A mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Father, as we've read this text again this morning, there's a, there's a weight to it. There's a heaviness. There's a sobering aspect. There's a, there's a lot of things we don't like to think about in it. For we want to... We want to be joyful. We want, to, we want things to be easy. But as on every Sunday morning when we read from your word, we invite you, God, to open your word to us and to teach us and instruct us, for it is your holy inspired word. It is useful for us. It is useful for correction, for reproof. It's useful for insight and wisdom. It's useful for training in righteousness. It's useful for making us as the people of God, equipped, ready for every good work. Would you instruct us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I called my sermon today the day of the Lord because it's a phrase that I repeated many times. If you notice through that several times, the specific phrase was given, but the word of the day and the day and the day is repeated over and over again. And so we're going to use that to structure our text this morning. I'm going to begin with the second part, uh, the second line of verse 7 as I break it apart. And once again, there's a handout on the back side of your bulletin if you care to follow along or take notes in some way. For the day of the Lord, Zephaniah says, the day of the Lord is near. It's coming. It's close. The day of the Lord is a phrase that is appearing in lots of different scriptures. So Zephaniah is not the first person to kind of bring about this phrase and say, the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. Several of the minor prophets talk about it. Some of the major prophets talk about it. And in some other places in scripture, it's referred to as well. The day of the Lord is near. And it reminds us that God, though the Bible speaks in general terms about God's holiness and God's God's judgment upon sin, the Bible also speaks of the specific day that's coming. It speaks of it as if there's a suddenness to it, right? That there's a specific time appointed, and there's a specific day that's coming. And when that day comes, there's a finality that's there. There's, there's a moment as time goes on, as, as all the hours and seconds and years and centuries as they go by, there's a day that comes, and that day brings something very specific, That God will finally and conclusively and utterly deal with sin against him. As we read in here, it doesn't take a whole lot of of exegesis. It doesn't take a whole lot of, of brilliant insight. It doesn't take a whole lot of deep study. As you read here, you understand that that day brings some very bad things for sinful humanity. Right? Now as with all texts, especially one of this long, there's not a way, there's no way we can deal with every single nuance, every single thing that's in here. So I'm going to have to pick a few things that I think we need to know about it this morning. But I want us to see again that just like all kinds of things in God's Word, there are layers upon layers When God uses phrases, and when God speaks to us, and when God instructs us, there's things that we can, in our position, look back and say, when Zephaniah is talking about the day of the Lord, for example, he is giving some really accurate descriptions of what's going to happen in the, excuse me, not too far down the road for them, when Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, this is around 586 BC, and he destroys Jerusalem. And a lot of the things that Zephaniah says actually took place. For example, Jewish historians are pretty clear in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar entered through the gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Fish Gate. Did you notice that in this, in this, uh, uh, in chapter 1 here, I think it's in verse uh, 10 here, it says a cry will be heard from the Fish Gate. The day that Nebuchadnezzar finally breached the wall of Jerusalem after putting it under siege, he entered, according to Jewish historians, through the Fish Gate. So Zephaniah was speaking pretty plainly. But you also see evidence, as again, looking back for us, but way down the road for these people, that the similar kind of destruction happened in the year 70 AD. So 600 years down the road, 600 plus years down the road, in 70 AD, when the general Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem completely. Absolutely, utterly destroyed it. For example, again, Jewish historians record that the slaughter went on all day long, and in the evening they were going through town with lights... With like candles and lights, and they were pulling people from the sewers where they were hiding so that they could kill them. And we read things like when Zephaniah says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish men. You see, there's layers, right? You see, when God says the day of the Lord is coming and he is referring to a specific day, we see a fulfillment and then we see another fulfillment. And then we see another, we see all kinds of fulfillment. We actually know when John saw his revelation of the end times, we read some very similar language. For example, let me just read to you from Revelation chapter 6. As he's seeing these seals opened, and as the seals open, all kinds of, of God's anger and all kinds of God's wrath being poured out against sinful people is happening. And in Revelation chapter 6, we read this. It says, when he opened, John seeing this with, as, as God is revealing to him. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when it was shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Has this taken place already? I mean, I don't think, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think history is recorded a time when the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. So there's a fulfillment coming yet, right? The day of the Lord happened, and it happened again, and it's going to happen again. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free... By the way, you can see some of this language in Zephaniah, right? He begins with officials and kings, sons. He talks about the servants and their masters. He talks about the the merchants. He talks about the people who are hiding their houses. He talks about on the day of the Lord, a mighty man crying aloud. He talks about all these things. Let me just come back to my, in in Revelation chapter six here. The kings of the earth, all those, uh, here's what they're going to do. They're going to They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then look what they say. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Oops, am I going ahead too far? I must have hit it twice. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, you know that's a rhetorical question, right? Do you know what a rhetorical question is, right? It's one that the answer is self-evident. And you know that's a rhetorical question, right? Who's going to stand against the wrath of God? Who's going to stand in front of the wrath of God? No one, no one will. None of us. Again, the text in Zephaniah makes it clear. It doesn't matter what your station of life is, whether you're the top or you're the bottom or anywhere in between. When the day of the Lord comes and the wrath is, is poured out upon humankind for their sinfulness, for their allegiance that has been not given or has been mixed or has been turned away from. We talked about that last week. And again, I could, would tell you, you can walk through the text today and you can find, well, these are things that are talking about allegiance. Why is it mentioned that the officials and the king's sons who array themselves in foreign attire? Right? That's an allegiance issue. Those who leap over the threshold of the, of, of the doorway, that's an allegiance issue. Most likely referring to some idol worship there. The merchants, if you look at the word there, they're actually, it actually indicates that those are, are um, oh, the word just went out of my head. I was going to say uh, not Canaanites. It's a referring to a group of people. It, depending on what translation you're reading, you may actually, you may actually be able to, to pull that out for me. But those merchants, those traders, those are referring to foreign people. So there's allegiance issues. Every one of these things is talking about allegiance issues. And when God's wrath begins to be poured out against those whose allegiance is not in the correct place, no one will stand against it. Now, there's one phrase I want to pull out from this first text before we move on. And it's this, because I think if you remember last week, if you remember last week, I gave you sort of three categories of people. Those who totally don't give their allegiance to God at all. And on the other side of things were those who gave their allegiance to God but turned away. And in the middle was the great category that I think we find ourselves most often, quite frankly. And it's those who mix their allegiance, who give their allegiance to Jesus, but mix it with other things. And so, therefore, this phrase that God points out to me, uh, points out to us this morning, I think is is an important one. I had it up here before, but it's verse 12. God says, I'm going to punish those men who are complacent. Those people who say in their hearts, and look at what they say. They say, the Lord will not do good nor will he do ill. Spend some time rolling that phrase through your head, and what is meant by that phrase? What kind of attitude do the people have who say, ah, God doesn't do good. He also doesn't do bad. What are they essentially saying about God? They're saying God doesn't concern himself with the affairs of men, right? They're saying God is, I mean, they may believe in God, but he's certainly not a God who's involved in stuff that's going on in our lives. He doesn't bring good things, he doesn't bring bad things. Things just happen. I appeal to the rule of nature. I appeal to just how things work out, or perhaps to fate, or to chance, or to luck, or to some other things. It's just how things go. In today's age, you might say, I appeal to the process of evolution. It's just how things develop. Things change over time, and how they do, how it happens is how it happens. God doesn't bring good things. He doesn't bring bad things. And God says, I'm going to punish those who are complacent, who find themselves in that place. I'm telling you, if we reduce God to a God who's not involved in our day-to-day things, then he's no different than a, some idol we're setting on the shelf somewhere that's lifeless. Well, I also think that this kind of thinking goes directly against what Scripture teaches us about what the person of faith believes. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says these words, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And notice what he points out. He says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, a mindset that says that God does get involved and God does does respond and God does bring good. And when I press into him, he's going to reward that. It's not the attitude that says, ah, God's just letting things take the course of whatever and he's just sort of third party out there. doesn't matter. He doesn't bring good. He doesn't bring bad. He's just indifferent. But the person of faith says, I believe that God exists, not just that he just exists and he's out there, but he exists and will reward those who seek him Will draw near to those who draw near to him. Well, let's keep moving. Zephaniah, in verse 14, reiterates his phrase, the great day of the Lord is near. And he adds a sort of a, 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 an urgency to it. He said, it's near and it's hastening fast. It's coming soon. Again, I tell you, it's the attitude that all of God's people have had from the beginning of, of, of the establishment of the church, for sure, up until today, is that God's day is coming. That day is coming soon. It's, it's hastening. It's nearing. It's approaching. It's coming quickly. We dare not delay. We dare not think, well, I have lots of time. We dare not think that it might be centuries or decades or even weeks down the road. We believe it's around the corner. We believe that also because we don't know how when our time will draw to an end, right? Even if the day of the Lord is 30 years from now, your life might end this afternoon. But the day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastening fast, and then he lists some things about that day. He takes another angle. He says, okay, I've told you what God's word is. I've told you what God says about so who he's going to punish and give some, some categories. And then he says, let me just describe that day for you. And if you would want to, and it's not very joyful or very fun, but if you would want to let your eyes travel through that list again, it's found in verses 14 and 15 and 16 of our text today. Look at the words that are being used to describe that day. It's a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of battle. Everything you think is fortified and can withstand will come crumbling down. I didn't jot down the reference, so I'm not sure which one it is. It's one of the other minor prophets that speaks of the day of the Lord. And he says something like this. You say that you look forward to the day of the Lord as if it will be a good thing. But I tell you, it will not be. It'll be a day of like being thrown into a furnace. That's a bit of my paraphrase. It's in one of the minor, I should have written, jotted down, the, and maybe someone knows. What, does anyone know where that's at? Minor prophets? In Amos? Yeah, thank you. Amos 2, 18 to 20, I think it is. I think that reference, I think it's somewhere in there. He says, you think it's gonna be a good thing when the day of the Lord comes, but I'm telling you it's to be a day of dread and fear. Listen, you've probably heard me say those, these kind of things here in front of you, and I, I don't back away from it, but we long for and hasten the day of Christ's return, for we want to be with him. But we have to balance that with a sure carefulness that says, when Christ returns, it brings some other things. And if we are not ready for that day, or if people we love are not ready for that day, that's not going to be a good day. That's not going to be a good day. These words, I don't think very many of us are saying, I can't wait for a day like that to come. Right? A day of devastation and ruin and wrath and distress and darkness and gloom. A day where we'll be walking around like blind men, even though it's light outside. As Zephaniah ties together why God's judgment is coming. He puts in a simple phrase in verse 17. He says, these things are happening because they have sinned against the Lord. It's that simple. Because they've sinned against the Lord. Isn't God's grace so amazing? It really is. And I don't want to downplay that for a second. Because God's grace is one of the most incredible gifts that we... I don't, again, I don't think we understand how amazing it is until we understand these kinds of things. You know, one of the greatest downsides to us living in such a day of incredible God's grace where God isn't burying people alive when they sin against them. He's not calling on fire from heaven when they sin against them. He's not bringing the destruction of the sword immediately when they sin against them. And he maybe didn't always do it immediately in the Old Testament either. But one of the, days, one of the, one of the downsides to us living in such amazing grace is that we forget how much God hates sin. We forget the short judgment of sin against God. We forget how holy God is and how unholy we can be. We forget, did you notice a phrase tucked away in here? We forget that God is a jealous God. We forget that God is a jealous God despite Him having said that multiple times in Scripture. When he reveals himself to the Israelites as he's giving them their commands and requirements for how to be his people in Deuteronomy 4.24, he says exactly that, right? He says, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When the Israelites recounted their history to their own people and said this is what things were like, and I get this from Psalm 78, when they recount their history, they pick up on that theme and they they say things like this. For they, speaking of their ancestors, they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. They recognized that he was a jealous God and would brook no mixed allegiance and no moving your allegiance from him to something else. And if we think it's any different under the new covenant, I would point you to Paul's writing when he writes his first letter to the Corinthians. I'm going to try to just flip there real quickly. First Corinthians chapter 10, it becomes pretty clear to us. In verse 21, he says, you cannot, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then he says this, another rhetorical question. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he God is still a jealous God. I propose to us that God's jealousy burns even hotter or more clearly since Jesus, not less. Because if the great length he went to, if he was willing to spill such precious blood as the blood of his own perfect sinless son, and we would spurn that, I believe his jealousy will be even of a higher degree. How can you, as the writer of Hebrews says, neglect the greater salvation? By the way, all three verses I just referred to, Deuteronomy 4.24, Psalm 78.58, and 1 Corinthians 10, 22 all three of them are all talking about idolatry, which very clearly, once again, puts this squarely in the camp that this is a discussion about allegiance. God's jealousy is aroused by our lack of allegiance to him. He created us. He created you. If he created you, I'm sorry to tell you, he owns you. We understand rights of ownership through creation very clearly in the business world. We make things like patents for those kind of things. We understand it very clearly. But God created you, and that means he owns you. But not only that, because he then also redeemed you by the blood of Jesus Christ after you were in bondage and slavery to sin... And to death, he redeemed you. He bought you back, which means he now owns you a second time. This is why God can say, I'm a jealous God. And I do not like when your allegiance is not given to me. And this is why God can say, if you choose to not give me your allegiance, or you choose to mix your allegiance, or you choose to turn away from that allegiance, once you start down that road, my wrath will come. This is why he can say that. He is absolutely justified in saying that. This is why James says words like these, speaking of the very same topic we're discussing. James chapter 4, let me read verses 4 through 10 for you. And it begins with a bang. You adulterous people. What does that mean? That means our allegiance has changed, right? That we are unfaithful. Unfaithful means that we were allegiant to this before and now we're allegiant to something else. You adulterous people, here's where it is. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose, listen to this, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me give you the third and final reason. I told you God is jealous for you, and he owns you because he created you. He's jealous for you and owns you because he redeemed you. And according to this verse, he's jealous for you and owns you, I would say, because he placed his spirit inside of you. His presence dwells inside of you. One more thought that I want to bring to you, lest we in our, I think it pertains to us in our wealthy American context. Zephaniah clearly points out that neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of of the wrath of the Lord. And I know as all good church people, we all know that. We all say, yep, I understand that. But I also know that it's the battle that we face week in and week out in our actual daily lives because we have so much at our disposal. We can so easily solve our problems. We can so easily take care of the things that we think are in our way instead of relying upon the Lord. Because we have those means at our disposal. Again, wisdom from the book of Proverbs, which I think is very pertinent to the discussion we're going to be entering in this week and going on through next week. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Let's be clear, since we're in the Old Testament and we're New Testament believers, let's be clear about something. You need at least a little piece of good news today. Let's be clear that that righteousness that delivers us from death is not our righteousness. It is Jesus' righteousness. But let's be clear that Jesus' righteousness does do exactly that. It delivers us from death if we choose to give him allegiance. But I want to go back to Zephaniah to the little phrase that we jumped over the very beginning, very first phrase out of my mouth as I read the text this morning. Because I think we all look for hope and we all look for something that will allow us to to breathe a little bit. And I want to give that to you. I desperately want to give it to you. And so I'm going to have to ask you to come back next week so I can. Because in this text, Zephaniah doesn't allow us. In fact, he says, here's your response. Look at the very first phrase of the text I read today Be silent before the Lord God. Do you ever notice how silence does stuff to us? Like it makes us start to squirm, right? There's all kinds of situations where we're in conversation with people and it goes quiet, it like, it gets uncomfortable. Like we feel like something's gotta be said or somebody's gotta say something or do something. I think it's one of the ways we protect ourselves. We try to squeeze out of things that are hard and Zephaniah recognizing this or I should say God recognizing this speaks to Zephaniah and says when I bring this message that is so devastating and hard and heavy before I tell you the good news I want you just to sit there and be quiet before God. In similar ways, when Habakkuk was questioning what God was doing, God says the same thing. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And I don't want you to fall asleep, but I have full intentions of honoring God's word this morning and just giving us a space to be quiet. For each of us to allow the weight or the the import of this text to sit with us. And I invite you to do the best you can at not allowing your mind to be distracted. And not allowing some thoughts of what's going to come later this afternoon or tomorrow. Or what happened yesterday. If you have those, I suppose you can take them to the Lord and ask Him to take care of that. But to sit and be silent before the Lord your God. And to think about how sure it is that his judgment is coming and how complete his wrath will be against the sinfulness of mankind and how desperately you need something, someone that will protect you because there's no way you're going to stand in the face of that wrath. If it helps you to close your eyes, you can do that. But I'm just going to be quiet for a little bit. And let us do exactly what this text says, to be silent before the Lord God. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and thank you that you have prepared it and preserved it through the years and given it to us. Thank you for the reminders. Thank you for the grace in which we stand that we are able to know ahead of time. Before that great day comes, we are able to know that this day is coming. We're able to know that as surely as the day came for Zephaniah and those that heard that message that day, as surely as the destruction of Jerusalem and as surely as the exile of the people, as surely as all that was going to happen, just as surely the day of the Lord with Christ's return is coming. Thank you that we, in your grace, are aware of that ahead of time and can make measures to be prepared for that. And I thank you for the word that is still coming from the book of Zephaniah, words that bring hope. We desperately need it, God. For in the face of the reality of your wrath being poured out on the ungodly and on the sinners and on the sinfulness of all of mankind and the destruction that the earth itself will experience because of our sinfulness, God, that is, that is devastating. It is terrifying. It is terrible. It is monumental. It is more than I can fathom. I thank you. I thank you for words that make it obvious to me that I need help, that we need help. We turn to you, God. We turn to you and ask you, what then should we do? How then can we be found pure and spotless? How can we be ready for this day? How can we be in a place where we have taken advantage of your grace and your slowness, as Peter put it, and find repentance and find healing and find rest and find forgiveness and find salvation and find eternal life thank you as always God I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the words of the message this morning and do what, it, what he always knows how to do in each of our hearts. You know the station we are in. You know the thoughts we're having. You know the places we are. You know the pride we may carry. You know the humility we may carry. You know the, 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 the victories we may have in our past and, and, and just this past week. You know the failures we may have in the past, just this past week. I pray that you would take your word, Father, through the Holy Spirit and impress upon us what is needful of us to help us to walk right before you. I thank you for this group of believers that's gathered here this morning and able to sit and receive such a difficult and and hard word and pray that you would sustain us by the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd help us to endure would help us to look to you to not be not be brought to a place of discouragement I pray so clearly so strongly in the, in the name of Jesus Christ this morning God that this would not be a foothold for the enemy to come and bring discouragement and help us and make us cause us to say we give up and we we're, we're just like helpless we're hopeless but that it would turn us to you that it would, it would drive us to Jesus Christ it would drive us to the strong tower it would, would, we would run to you and say God God you got to help me you got to save me I want to hide myself you're the only answer we have Thank you. We give you praise and we give you a right to do with us. We give you a right to do with us what you want, God. In Jesus' name, amen.